Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard, but by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the programme grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash history hack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to History Hack. You've got Zach and Beth with you today, the history cis bro duo in the house. Hello, Beth. How are you doing? Hi, Zach. I'm good. You're right. Yeah, I'm good. Who are we talking to today? Because we're kind of ish in my wheelhouse, aren't we? It's partly both of us, really, isn't it? Because it's your like time period, I suppose, but the the content is probably more my wheelhouse. So it's a nice mm-hmm. mixture for the two of us. Um, so we're joined by Sarah Jane Downing. Um, Sarah Jane is an author and freelance journalist with particular interest in history and fashion and beauty. Um, she's written widely on a variety of subjects for lots of different publications with titles including Fashion in the Time of William Shakespeare and The English Pleasure Garden, 1660 to 1860. But today we get to talk to Sarah about her most recent publication, which is called Pastime and Pleasure in the Time of Jane Austen. So Sarah Jane, welcome to History Hack. Hi, thank you so much for inviting me. Um, so obviously your book is called it's set in the time of Jane Austen so we're looking at that early regency period the 1800s 1820s so on and when I I know when I certainly think of that time period and the wider regency period um, we often think of fashion as one of its identifying features or I certainly do Uh, we see in the regency period the creation of now the pastime for the upper and middle classes so we we haven't got just this identifying feature as fashion but we're looking at pastime as well going to like the going promenading attending art galleries and so on can you talk us through some of the social changes cha- the social and economic changes that were happening at this time that allowed for this introduction of doing something for fun rather than necessity absolutely well yes i mean it- things changed profoundly during this period. I mean, if you think about the the, the continued time of war, uh, you think about how everything is just absolutely, completely different. I think the thing that is the most exciting great change is the advent of the fashion magazine. 
And that's one of the reasons why I chose to do this book in particular, because there are so many fantastic fashion plates that, that um, show a specific activity or a specific occasion that you might want to dress for in particular. And I think one of the most exciting things is that um, with the advent of the fashion press, you start to have a season by season fashion so that you have got so many more options and so many more choices and um, it starts to really sort of make you think in terms of ah right this is an opportunity to dress for this rather than just well this is my favorite I always wear this so this is what I shall wear again. So one of your particularly early chapters is entitled Pleasure in the Picturesque which as far as I understand is essentially about how pastimes are taken in what we might call the great outdoors, you know, being seen out and about in a carriage, painting landscapes and, and so on. Was that as a concept kind of new to Jane Austen's era or was it something that was kind of being done before the early 19th century, but only by a very select group because of things like affluence and opportunity and so on? Um Definitely it was done before, but of course you had an awful lot of difficulties throughout the sort of the 18th century. It was when they, the advent of the Turnpike Road started to make travel so much better and um, so much more of a prospect. Because if you think about in, you know, spending a couple of days in an uncomfortable carriage, jolting along terrible roads, it made the idea of travel far less appealing. Uh, suddenly, at this point in time, you have got um, you've got the road system, which is starting to come into place. So it makes everything far more accessible. You also have a great idea of the fashion for carriages. And um, one of the fashion plates in the book is of the Phaeton carriage. And it's absolutely gorgeous. It's really sort of, it's highly sprung. It's seated up high. It's very elegant. It's very pretty. And you start to have a selection of quite exciting different carriages and conveyances that people like to own and show off and it's something of a signature as in you know this is um this is lord so-and-so in his barouche and that sort of thing so that also i think makes people feel more excited about going out but i think that um with william gilpin the idea of the picturesque it starts to bring forward the idea of the landscape in a very different way. And so you've got an environmental sort of element like we have in our minds today. Um, you have a terrible sort of situation as you go from the 1790s onwards into the 19th century. They enclosed millions and millions and millions of acres of land. And up until that point in time, you had a situation whereby, yes, you may own the land, but you would allow people who lived nearby to graze their animals there or to come and gather firewood there or to do things that were just, you know, you might consider to be way below anything that you'd like to be involved in or know about. But it was a lifeline for others who were living in a different way. At this point in time, you start to have the idea of the landscape which is beautiful in terms of how you want to see your huge estate and how you want everything to be beautiful, meandering into the distance. Absolutely gorgeous. And I think very much part of what has made our green and pleasant land. 
but it did completely rob those people who were in a much smaller, uh, more sort of pernicious existence of the lifeblood of being able to use someone else's land, the periphery, in a very different way. And so that's one of the great concerns. But also because um, you, foreign travel is far less of an option because of war across Europe, people started to look at our landscape in a different way. And um, if you think about um, some of the romantic novels and the romantic poets that start to come through, um, it's a matter of engaging with the landscape in a way that is emotional and spiritual, as well as just, you know, oh, that's beautiful as we drive past. And so going on lovely, wonderful long walks with a sketch pad or with the book of poetry was a different way of engaging with the environment and the landscape. So is there a kind of a dichotomy here? Because you, you're talking about kind of a, a growing appreciation of landscape at a time when Britain's in its industrial revolution. And so what we're doing, we're carving up the landscape. You know, the first railways are about to get laid. Um, the growth of kind of industrial towns. So you have this kind of really curious disconnect between we need to appreciate the landscape and yet also we need to kind of butcher the landscape for the sake yes. of industrial growth. So, so how do they reconcile the two? Is kind of is industrialization this great kind of moral dilemma and a you know it's going to have a corrupting influence on society? Is that how they think about it? Yes, well, some people, I mean, as, as in our own time, we are very divided at the moment over things like HS2, aren't we? And um, some people are absolutely pro and other people are absolutely against. And it's very similar. You do have very entrenched positions from different factions. And yes, definitely a lot is written slightly later in terms of the, the damage that it is doing to the environment, the damage that it's doing to to different sectors of society and how the lives of other people are changed. Mm, definitely. And then I suppose by extension of that, you've then got to so talk about in the outdoors and using the land better. Um, but people are finding new places, as you said, and one of those places seems to be like the seaside as well. Um, seaside really seems to be quite a popular choice for people to partake of their pastimes and so on. I mean, I know why I like the seaside. That's because I live... <laughs> two hours away from the nearest beach and it's a proper novelty for me to go to the beach um so why do you think 200 years ago that this was the case you know what kind of activities were they being undertaken there and, and by who was it again these upper classes or were was it starting to filter down a little bit um, it, it takes a while for it to filter down, but yes, exactly. I think a lot of the people felt, as, as you have described, yes, the exciting novelty of going to the beach. And definitely it, the most exciting thing, I mean, the idea of taking the waters, because of course we, we're at a very advantageous point for our health with the NHS and with, um, at that point in time, health is still quite a mystery. And uh, if something besieges a person and they don't understand what, how and why, it was quite horrifying because of course, people didn't know how that condition went into a point where it worsened and the person died. So uh, things like taking the waters had been a very exciting sort of um, option for most people of, 
all different walks of life. So the, the spa town had been a, a, had grown and become a huge thing in the later 18th century. But the seaside starts to take over because the concept is not just to drink the waters, which of course were often quite hideous and unpleasant. And often it was a matter of not just one or two liters, but you know, someone having to drink three liters of this horrible water each morning. So um, the idea of immersion was the thing that really attracted people to the seaside. And uh, the idea of, again, as we're saying about the picturesque landscape, and we're saying about looking at that which is familiar, but in a different way. So the idea of actually engaging with the sea, not just for fishermen, um, and going out there and immersed in the seawater, experiencing a completely different part of the world that you would never normally voluntarily get into or go into. So that was very exciting, a huge novelty. And uh, I think you had you had the wonderful sort of thing with the um, with the bathing machines where you would be in um, a waiting area and you would have the opportunity to sort of see the bathing machine come up privately descend into the water and uh, it gave an opportunity for women to bathe because before men had often been a little bit more sort of free and easy and so long as there weren't too many people around they would just go in but um, the idea of protecting a woman from the gaze was very much to the fore. So hence the hooded machine where the horse took them right out into the seawater so that they could be completely immersed undercover, privately and secretly almost. Because there were reports even at the time of people who were using what should be um, a nautical spyglass to look into the distance, training it on the machines to see if maybe oh. there was any element of, could we see somebody? <laughs> oh my. So even in the 18th century, you have beach pervs. I'm Who afraid. Knew? <laughs> Who knew? Um, yes, isn't that terrible? <laughs> it is. Um, wow. Yes. <laughs> Anything to see um, an, an uncovered ankle, clearly, during this that, period. Exactly. Um, All those ankles. <laughs> yes, quite. Um, exactly. <laughs> I'm quite conscious in this conversation, you know, I'm about 10 minutes away from the sea. <laughs> so I, I am that person that you are you're jealous of, Beth. Um, sorry, I, not sorry. I thought you were about to say I am that person who looks for an ankle or two at oh, the beach. No. <laughs> <laughs> it did look like that's where you were going with that. <laughs> so basically, my history sister is trying to expose me as a dirty man. <laughs> right this wasn't where I expected this interview to go um, I just want to, to pause for a second and just talk about the that sort of growth of the spa town because George III is quite significant in this isn't he I'm thinking particularly his connections with Weymouth um, and him going to Weymouth for this whole purpose of you know taking the airs and the waters and, and so on so is there this sense of the king's doing it hey this is a great idea let's emulate it or are lots of people kind of becoming aware that okay so we can go to the countryside but hey did you know there's this thing called the sea it actually looks quite nice you might want to try that as well or do both happen simultaneously both happen um i i think once once the because of course it, it was a slightly forbidden idea because we're looking at you know being outside and being possibly uh well 
in some cases naked, in other cases just with um, a robe to bathe in. So it's quite daring. And I think that having that royal seal of approval was something that really allowed for people of the court or hopeful court circles to think, okay, right, if, if he is able to do it and that is okay, then that allows us to do it too. Then of course you do have the idea that this is a healthy thing and this is going to help to make people feel better, prolong and preserve their lives. So everybody is sort of thinking, right, okay, yes, it might be worth taking the plunge, so to speak. Terrible pun, I know. <laughs> and you talked also about going abroad. I mean, this is the era of the Grand Tour. How many people can afford to go abroad? And do you get kind of truncated versions of the Grand Tour so they don't take in all the sites, but they sort of, particularly once the war is over post 1815, okay, people sort of start in 1814 and then Napoleon comes back and that's a whole rant for another day. Um, but do you see people sort of just doing a little bit, you know, hop over, do Paris, maybe do Brussels, come back? Um, or, or is actually, is it a case that if you're gonna do the Grand Tour, go do it properly or don't do it at all? <laughs> Well, that would be absolutely lovely. And I think a lot of people did think that if you don't make it to Constantinople, then you haven't been anywhere. But um, I think other people were much more sort of uh, thinking, no, we've got two months. This is the time that we can spend. So this is how far we're going to go. And of course, you did also have people going and their money ran out when they got to a certain place. And so it's like, right, here we are. Um, and of course, you had people who fell in love with certain places and thought no I, I don't really want to I don't want to break the enchantment that I have here I'd like to stay here a while. I was moving away a little bit from sort of that travel and going to new places obviously for those who maybe weren't able to to do that we see the development of is in pastimes and pleasure we talk about the growth of like theatre and the opera um those kinds of activities I mean I love going to like the theatre and I can only imagine how exciting like a trip up to London to see a play might have been. I think that would have been the height of adventure for quite a few people. Um, indeed, you know, Jane Austen makes mentions of it in her novels as well, doesn't she? You know, going up to London, seeing the shows, going to the... It's, it's quite, it's a big social event, isn't it? Absolutely. Well, as, as you'll see in, in that chapter, this beautiful gown, which is mm. a theatre gown, and there are quite a few opera gowns. I don't know why there are more opera than there are theatre, um, except, of course, that at the opera, there was definitely a thing where people were not really... The, the way that, I mean, we would go to see an opera now, and we immerse ourselves, we're quiet, we sit there, we enjoy the whole thing and drink it in. Mm. Whereas at the opera, it was much more as uh, sort of ah right but I can see so and so over there and you might even troop over to go and visit so and so in her box so especially if she is quite um, prestigious and she's got prestigious friends because you might want to just be caught there at a time where someone who you'd like to get to know is there at the same time so an introduction has to be made so there's a real sort of exciting social sort of thing going on with the opera um, Definitely, the theatre was brilliant. You have the change from where you had very, um, you think about, you know, uh, Sarah Siddons, the great tragedian, and you think about the way in which theatre was consumed in very traditional, very, um, 
very traditional, very sort of um, formal kind of a way. And at this period, you start to have a wider range of theatres. And one that Jane visited herself was Astley's Amphitheatre. And um, that was known originally as a sort of theatre, almost, I guess, like a forerunner to music hall, where you've got a selection of singing, dancing, and just sort of out and out acts. And there's quite a lot because, um, it was an amphitheatre. There's quite a lot of um, shows based around horses. So you've got sort of equestrian feats and events. You also have at the time when Jane went, but she doesn't stay whether she actually saw him or not. You've got little novelty things like Bobby, who was a pony who would come out and boil a tea kettle and serve tea. How on earth he did it with hooves, I don't know. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Isn't that absolutely fantastic? I mean, would you not just absolutely love to see that? <laughs> I mean, it, it would certainly be a sight to behold. To see, <laughs> make, make, I'm, I'm really confused. I mean, I've seen somebody make a cup of tea using an articulated lorry, um, <laughs> but the milk's already in by that point. Um, so, I mean, the, the complexities of it. I know. Uh, I yeah. Okay. Um, I think means let's I'm move on a bit blown away by that yeah yeah we're, we're um we're scratching our heads a, a fair bit about that yeah. I like what you say though about you know it's about who you can get to see but it's also about being seen isn't it you know Absolutely. being seen associating with a certain person and, and in some cases actually you don't want to be seen um associating <laughs> with certain people because of their reputation what are the rules for women in terms of that and the kind of the notion of the chaperone during this period because that there are all kinds of kind of concerns inverted commas during this period about ladies virtue and you know making sure that they are um seen to conduct themselves in a way that society deemed inverted commas appropriate um so what are the rules when you're going to the theater because presumably you can't go to the theater alone that would be sort of very very scandalous so talk us through that a little bit Absolutely. Well, you would go with um, probably a family party or a party of friends, and there would be strict invitations about whose party, you know, you would know all of the people who were going to be in your group, and uh, it would all be very, very clear as to who was going with whom and what the relationships is. So that does allow for there to be some older members of the party who could act as chaperones to be very careful, just in case, you know, you were waving at somebody <laughs> over in the distance. <laughs> um, to make sure that, um, you know, that an exciting sort of um, introduction couldn't become too exciting. And um, there would definitely be a lot of attention paid to some of the, the people who would be there dressed in absolutely beautiful gowns and a lot of whispering about, but who is she with? Because I saw her with so-and-so mo a moment ago and now she's with so-and-so. So there is, I think, quite a, an opportunity for gossip there as well. And some people who were of um, an exciting sort of um, demi-reputation would like the idea that they had been associated with these different people and it would be quite sort of exciting for them to be notorious but on the whole most people would be very very strictly brought up strictly sort of bound by convention and any kind of um 
whiff or suggestion that they had been involved with somebody who was not socially acceptable would be sort of like, oh no, oh my goodness. So uh, hopefully fewer instances there of people sort of trying to catch sight of a uncovered ankle or, or something of that. <laughs> that's <ill. laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Although, of course, you did have you did have a faction of people who were, um, I suppose, on the fringes of prostitution who would be there and they would be quite keen to make sure that a, a beautiful ankle was shown. <laughs> scandalous, scandalous. Um, let's let's move away before we uh, we fluster our listeners, because um, and we're going to move on to a word that I cannot pronounce. Um, because you talk about something called phantasmagoria, which sounds like something out of Harry Potter, if I'm being really honest. <laughs> so for the listeners who uh, I'm guessing aren't going to know what this is, give us a quick rundown of the concept that you're talking about there. The phantasmagoria is absolutely fascinating. If you think in terms of um, immersive art, experiences that we have now and if you think in terms of um almost like your sort of haunted house kind of experience so the phantasmagoria was something that um in the the just after the french revolution um etienne gaspard did the first phantasmagorie in french in paris and the idea was that the the visitors would descend down dark craggy steps by candlelight into a crypt that was abandoned and the frisson of being in this terrifying darkness of the abandoned crypt it was at um it was at a monastery so it, it really you, you think about um fusilli paintings you think about the mysteries of rodolfo and you think about the gothic novels it's that sort of feeling come to life and then once they're all sort of, you know, frightened and giggling in the darkness, um, various apparitions appeared. And uh, at that point, the first incarnation, it was apparitions who had been recently murdered during the terror. And so the idea of seeing Marat and uh, Robespierre and some of the other people who had been so pivotal in the revolution come to not come to life but come to um very sort of ethereal ghostliness in the darkness was absolutely stunning terrifying thrilling all of those and so they changed the concept slightly um later on to be more of an egyptian theme because of course as you move away from the revolution and you get towards um the turn of the century we have the egyptian campaigns and the napoleonic wars so the whole idea of the mummy and the crypt and uh, the Egyptiana is very much to the fore. So it's given a new sort of um, mummy in the crypt kind of tone. And the Phantasmagoria in London, they had an Egyptiana show as well. So you've got sort of um, spectres in the darkness, but you've also got um, mummies disturbed in their crypts <laughs> as well. So if you want to be in a Gothic novel, this is how you bring it to life. <laughs> Wow. Um, I'm interested in the origin of the concept. Is the idea to scare people, because obviously the whole thing is, you know, fear. Are they trying to instill people with a fear of the revolution? And is this kind of a, a latter phase of the revolution? You know, this is Robespierre. Robespierre was a piece of work. 
fear him you know is that where they're going with this you know so that you know this phase of the revolution was bad be grateful that you know we've moved on from that is that the concept there or am I just trying to read too much into that I, I think possibly it was more in terms of trying to come to terms with all that's happened and seeing those things distanced but very much because of so much loss for revolution for, for most families losing somebody i mean definitely revolutionary france but also you think here as well um with the wars going on decade after decade there isn't a family who hasn't lost somebody so mourning is very much as part of everyday life and i think it's allowing a group visitation to mourning i think is really what we're, we're thinking of and so that's that's lost in a tragic way but that's also lost in a we moving on kind of way as well so i i think that's what they were doing with that incarnation of the phantasmagoria hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Fascinating such such a wonderful time like everything we're talking about it's so it's so fascinating um we also see in this period of time don't we you know we talk about like the enlightenment periods and so on but i think in this period this regency period the jane austen time really see an opportunity for learning and advancing your own knowledge um you know access to locations such as the royal academy the royal institution it's really a time of discovery and, and personal growth i think would you do you think would you agree with that Absolutely, absolutely. And I think what's interesting is you see this in terms of people want to demonstrate what they know, they want to engage with everything, as we're saying about, you know, the landscape, looking at it in a different way. Um, visiting Europe looking at it in a different way and so yes it's it's to show not only um somebody as um somebody who's of a very good very traditional family someone who's of a certain social class or um somebody who's of a certain level of wealth it's uh, a distinction again to show that yes this is somebody who knows and understands and engages with lots of exciting new concepts and it is it's it's quite amazing to to see it in different ways and if you think about it in terms of in the industrial revolution you've got um you've got people uh, like matthew bolton who are using the sort of um demonstration of their exciting knowledge to do 
really cutting edge, quite literally different things. I mean, like the, you think of the cut steel jewelry of the period. And so this is um, a demonstration of modern, exciting methods, new knowledge, actually they're made glittery and beautiful for you to wear. So you've, you've got a lot of the concept of displaying what you've learned, what you're learning and what you know. Is there a lot of gatekeeping with that knowledge though? Because we're in a, an era of, of separate spheres and you know women are expected to be educated in things like geography and poetry and so on so they can make nice conversation whereas a man needs to be educated in manly things like science and so you know if you as a woman wanted to attend a medical lecture or something this would I'm not sure you'd even get in the door is, is that right <laughs> yes exactly well certainly um if you wanted to be educated and if you wanted to literally go and see this as a university lecture then absolutely not but um but no i mean we do know that uh, mary shelley attended some of the medical lectures and so it is to i think the idea if you went and you went with a group of respectable people and it was part of that i think that would be regarded as fine especially if you didn't take any notes <laughs> But I think if you had um, an interest beyond a passing, a passing interest, then I think that is where the gatekeeping comes in. And definitely you do have that weird dichotomy where, yes, to be well educated is a great virtue for a young lady, but to be well educated in terms of actually knowing things and being qualified in things and doing things, then the, there is exactly the gate is slammed very firmly shut between the two shock horror you know these women will yeah. be demanding the vote next or something utterly <laughs> yeah. insane like that exactly <laughs> it's yes, interesting for their boots there i think <laughs> yeah um it's interesting what you, it's, suddenly frankenstein makes so much more sense hmm. to me um <laughs> and where the idea came from now that i know that that that's fascinating um so we've got all of these exciting pastimes that are going on outside the home, but it was still important to have certain skills. And, you know, these might be sort of handicrafts, there might be sport, embroidery. Why was that still important to people during this era? And particularly, I suppose, for, for women of the Austin era, what would those pastimes actually do for them you know what practical use were they because you know you, you've got if you're of a certain status you've got maids and so on who can do many of these things for you if you really want to so what's the thinking behind it all well I think that stems back to a much earlier era and I think the idea of um stitching and virtue go hand in hand mm. and so I mean the, the needlework is absolutely key in so many different ways and so i think it's it's um it's a lovely productive thing that somebody can do in a very safe enclosed space and it shows that they are doing something with their hands doing something with their mind and doing something that's productive for other people because i think this is um a great translation of a young lady's time into things for other people 
<laughs> which is quite interesting. And so um, you you have um, in Mansfield Park, Fanny is making shirts for her brother. Jane and her sister did that for their naval brother. Um, so you you're showing closeness and love by producing something so it's so much more special and intimate and caring than just simply having uh, bought a garment which of course these garments were not quite so readily available anyway or having a maid or somebody make it so you're really engaging and showing something special and and sending something as as a loving gift um, you might be making gifts for um, other friends within your circle. Just um, Jane makes a beautiful little needle, um, needle case, which is sent. Um, an episode where somebody is making a needle case for someone and she really isn't that interested in cultivating the friendship and she really isn't that interested in completing the needle case. So it's sort of, um, yes, cursory embroidery on that one rather than... <laughs> rather than the full effort um, but so, so th these are you're also using it in terms of social glue in that respect because you are making something for somebody and this could just be as a friendship on a level but it could be as a friendship that is being fostered to try to broker a closer friendship with somebody who's maybe slightly more socially desirable so you're doing little things like that as well even sitting there with your embroidery or with your needlework it's an opportunity to show your beautiful posture it's an opportunity to show your elegant lovely hands and delicate movements and so even sitting quietly whilst guests are visiting other family members you can be sort of um showing how elegant and lovely and marriageable you are so there's something there as well to just spending that time there and um then you also had things to show your virtue and also i mean importantly not just as a sort of um cipher for the virtue but literally uh, making clothes for people who were the poorer people who were in your village or on your estate um, making baby clothes to welcome people's you know new family members because of course obviously considering the time that you have to spend and the time that someone who is farming or doing something much more practical the time they have to spend it's it's only right that you can produce something as beautiful gift to, to welcome back new baby obviously we've just talked about like women and what was expected of them but men also had particular pastimes that they found themselves partaking in I suppose some of them have maybe more negative connotations gambling dueling fighting and so on um do you think maybe these activities were they a way to like prove their masculinity prove themselves to their peers you know that they were they were there were manly men who could fight their their um I don't know how you would like to say their their um I can't think of the word I'm trying to use but to fight other men you know to prove how they that they are a good match yes, potentially yeah exactly I suppose it's sort of vying to be an alpha isn't it yes. you know and I think there's quite a lot of demonstration of that yes I mean I think this I think that there are two sort of quite interesting reasons for this. I think it dates back to a slightly earlier period where um, most men in more sort of noble and courtly circles were quite um, 
quite sort of effete in the way that they look. So if you think about the wig wearing and you think about, you know, makeup and little heels. And so you, you definitely have dueling dating back to that period where I think it is something that would definitely be along that sort of um, theme. Um, and of course, as you are in this period, you have got quite a, you've got quite an interesting thought because so many people are away participating in the wars that I think for those who aren't, then maybe there was an attraction to doing these sort of, you know, mandy things and demonstrating their masculinity in a very sort of um, singular kind of way. And so, yeah, I do think there's quite a lot of that. Uh, but also I think you have, this is a period where there isn't so much in terms of law enforcement. And so I think you've got things like showing that you are disapproving of one person's action against you. So, you know, if somebody slights a member of your family, you will offer them to a duel because it is to defend, defend their honor and it is defend your honor to defend your honour, uh, because you really have to take that role as one of the, you know, male leaders of the family. You have to show that uh, that you are there to defend everybody and to to make things right for them. The dueling thing is just insane. We could do a whole podcast just on that. Frankly, if Alex was here, oh. she would turn around and say it's basically a massive pissing contest because. <laughs> <laughs> in a way it is um and there's this whole bizarre thing about the fact that it's not even legal for chunks of this period oh, so yeah. the army you're not meant to duel but they all duel and then they get caught out dueling and they go no it wasn't me Gar. and you get the witnesses in and they go i've got no idea how this guy ended up with a bullet in him it's just complete mystery <laughs> i didn't see anything i didn't hear anything so these cases collapsed <laughs> It's just madness. Everywhere else but the actual jewel. I didn't see anything. Yeah, I, I was out for a lovely walk. Yeah. I was admiring the landscape. That's what I was doing. I was I was being, you know, yeah, kind of virtuous and, and very 19th century. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But you you do have uh like in sense and sensibility. Um it's it's necessary because there has been a slight on her reputation and um it cannot be put right unless she is, of course, I mean, because of you know, the, the standards of the time, she isn't able to defend herself. She isn't able to put that right. And it can't be left as wrong because that will be taken as a mark upon her and possibly her family and her children and so on and so forth. So it, it's it's very important in terms of that sort of social kind of way so that it has to be marked out. If a wrong has been done, a gentleman will make that right. And so even if you don't want to, you're obliged to have to do so. There's another layer of nuttiness to this whole thing, which is that if you then go and fire on somebody, that's in some circles deemed unmanly. Uh, so if you aim to yeah. kill, then that, that's a real no-no. You shouldn't aim to kill. And yet at the same time, if you're not actually fighting, what's the point of you doing this whole thing in the first place? But like <laughs> I say, that's that's an episode in its own right. Um, we, we have to talk about fashion 
right? Um, and the fact that fashion was just important for the men as it was for the ladies. So let's talk about how the men are displaying their wealth. What are they doing during this period? Well, it's it's great it's great subtlety, and so it's all of these lovely distinctions that only another gentleman would gentleman would be able to discern. And so it's perfect. It's subtle colours and perfect cuts, perfect fit and if you think about um you think about the changes from the earlier sort of 18th century um where you have you have the french revolution as a massive cut-off point because all of those beautiful fashions pink lace wigs and so on all at that point are completely um completely done away with because you had at that point situation whereby someone was still displaying those colors and styles of, of the ancien regime they were well basically sort of sent up to the gallows and outside to the guillotine and this is the end of it it was it was termed as the great renunciation and so uh, this is where men are sort of renouncing their peacockness and their colours. And this is something that um, we embraced very wholeheartedly. We were never quite on, on these shores, never quite as um, flamboyant in the first place. But um, it's Beau Brummel who really changes things. And um, he takes what has been already in place in terms of the more subtle colours and the more subtle way of men being slightly more masculine. So um, you, you've got a lot of wearing of very, very tight trousers, very beautiful, shiny boots, but often quite sort of spattered with mud to be you know to show that you've just come in from a fantastic ride or from a carriage race or something like that and you have got um beautifully fitted shirts jackets the cravat is massively important and there was so many things written about the correct way to tie a cravat um, often with the help of a valet because often you can only do it with somebody else to help you and uh, there are all these rules that Beau Brummel set about how shirts and cravats have to be laundered and um, it isn't good enough for them to just be laundered in London they have to then be sent out to be dried on bushes uh, or on the heath so that they've got full fresh air and they've got to be starched perfectly and all of these wonderful sort of uh, suggestions of how to do everything perfectly and properly and so um, you go from having all of these great sort of um, expressions of wealth in a literal sense with silk and gold embroidery and fine lace and so on. So you think of the team it would take to make sure that every shirt and cravat was not just laundered, but also taken to be aired in the correct air, the correct location. And then someone to stand over you to help you make sure that um, the cravat was tied correctly. And this was a whole sort of process of having to have your head right up in the air to then gently crease it into perfect tiny little creases before it's finally tied and everything has to be absolutely perfect white so you are wearing gloves to do it so there's no chance of any kind of smudge and so it's it's a different way of 
making the statement in a much more subtle way. And um, the Prince Regent takes his cues from Beau Brummel, so everybody else does too. And so, it, yeah. <laughs> Like, obviously, when we think about this time period and anyone who's read a Jane Austen novel or seen one of the TV or film adaptations, um, romance and the prospect of marriage is extremely important. You know, very practically for women, it's avoiding destitution, homelessness, you know, relying on your family members. For men, obviously, it's a necessity of carrying out, carrying on the family name. Um what kind of pastimes would the young men and women of the time have been expected to, to participate in so that they secured these matches? Because I suppose not all pastimes were just for pleasure, it was for practical purposes as well. Yes, yes, indeed. Well, that, that's a very good point. Uh, well, I mean, for instance, you if you are um, of a certain sort of social standing, you have an obligation to make sure that you throw balls and events, dances and things so that people have the opportunity to come together. And so this was this was a very important obligation for each family, you know, county families, families of the town. And so, the dances are really your key sort of opportunities, but there are lots of other little opportunities, as we're saying, you know, um, joining a party in the theatre. So it's quite possible that your mother would make sure that um, the mothers of several eligible bachelors were invited so that they could then bring their sons. And th there would be an awful lot of networking amongst family members to try to get the best possible connections for those offspring. I mean, think of Pride and Prejudice, you know, think of all the Bennett girls and how much effort they would have to make to try to court all of the best families to make sure that they have introductions for all of those daughters. But uh, yes, definitely social events of all kinds, but dancing more than anything. And I really from a child onwards, you are start you start to learn how to dance properly, and that's proper deportment, and that's being able to participate in all of the most sort of popular and fashionable dances, so that you can always be putting yourself in the way of the most eligible choice. <laughs> so you can sort of be like, yes, see how pretty I look. Look at my lovely sewing. <laughs> look at my pretty, no, not my pretty ankle, but look at my pretty wrist, my lovely fluttering fan. And so... <laughs> See, you'll have flustered all of our listeners again with that mention of that ankle, you know. I know, although, I know. All of those men who would be standing on, on beach cliff tops with, uh, with their spy glasses. Yeah, no, they're, <laughs> they're struggling right no, now. There, there's a, a section of your book that looks at some of the what Beth, when she was writing the questions, termed sauciness. Um, <laughs> because unfortunately, we're starting to run out of time. I'm going to make people go and read the book to find out about the things like the prostitution that gets highlighted, the secret sex clubs, which sounds like a whole story in itself, and the influence <laughs> of alcohol. Um, but there is a, a downside to that behaviour, some of it fairly logical, you know, sexually transmitted infections, drunkenness, fighting, eloping, all of which actually ends up being highlighted in Pride and Prejudice. So it's not all fun and games. Just give us just give us some teasers to make people go and buy the book. You know, some of the stories that you've written about and 
um, just a, a hint of the, the the sauciness, as Beth calls it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I don't know where to start. I feel a little bit embarrassed now being put on this. <laughs> It's one thing writing it, it's quite another thing talking about it. But uh, I, I think as, as we were saying earlier, you do have this very, um, this very, very strange dichotomy where everything is so beautifully well organised and regimented most of the time. I think it's almost to be able to break out. And um, we all do this to a certain degree. I don't think there's anybody who hasn't taken time off from their studies or their exams to go to a club and maybe drink much too much and that sort of thing. Yes. So I, I think it is. <laughs> Oh, too many times. Yeah. <laughs> Beth is nodding. We can see this. Yes, <laughs> so I, I think we we often we all have that sort of compulsion to break out and to do something that maybe isn't the most sensible thing but can be an awful lot of fun and so one of the things that really stands out as a particular regency thing and it's awful when you think about it but um this idea this whole idea of um the, the cutting a rule and so you have these young gentlemen who have got together who are basically it's, it's practically a rampage it's drinking to a huge huge crazy degree uh, three bottles of port in a night and then it's going out and sort of you know being very loud and boisterous and um you had the night watch during the era rather than a police force mm. per se and so you'd have these these little sort of constables in almost like sentry boxes on various corners throughout the the city and one of the great things that they left to do was be to sort of sneak up behind where the the night watchman might have dropped off to sleep somewhere late at night and tipping the box over so that he's trapped inside it um, on the pavement which is absolutely awful but they seem to take great pleasure in doing this and running off giggling and going off to the next pub <laughs> absolutely and so people would sort of then meet um late at night i think you know instead of a kebab shop it would be an oyster room and so at the very end of the evening people after having had many many drinks in different places and having all sorts of adventures uh would meet up and have oysters and try to chat up one of the lovely oyster serving girls uh who gosh must have been completely sick of all these drunks <laughs> and flirting and uh, yes would often end up there having this you know fantastic slap-up meal or maybe falling asleep at the table before having to sort of stumble off in time for um well depends if it's been a good night just to go home if it's not been a good night for the dueling at dawn <laughs> absolutely well Sarah Jane, thank you so much for joining us today and talking about the contents of your book. So for our listeners, please tell them where they can get it and when they should get it, which should be immediately after listening to this podcast. 
Oh, that is the best recommendation. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, that would be fantastic. Uh, yes, the, the, the book came out um, on the 15th. So it's only been out a couple of days and um, it's available on Amazon and all other good retailers online and in the real world. So yes, it'd be fantastic. Uh, well, I am doing an official book launch if anybody would like to come and get a book, get it signed. And um, I'm, with that, I'm doing a talk about some of the themes in Pastimes and Pleasures. Um, it's at Astley Book Farm in Warwickshire, uh, which it's sort of it's right out in the country near to Nuneaton, and um, tickets will be available from the Astley Book Farm website and um, from my website as well, which is sarahjanedowning.co.uk, and um, the launch and the talk is on the afternoon of Saturday, April twenty third. So it would be delightful if you'd like to come. Um, and I will just say to folks, don't go to Amazon and give Jess Bezos his business. Was it Ambly who published this? Yes, this that's book? right. Yes. Absolutely. OK, so people either go to Ambly's website and order it direct because Sarah Jane will then actually see some of the royalties rather than being turned into a puff of smoke as Jeff Bezos goes on his latest trip to space. Or you can go to the History Hack bookstore where, as you know, because I tell you often enough, Sarah Jane gets her cut. History Hack gets a little cut, and then also you support independent booksellers. So you've got two options there. Go direct to Ambly or um, help everybody out effectively and, and check out the bookstore. There will be a link in the description. Sarah Jane, this has been absolutely brilliant. We could have talked for another hour, frankly. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been absolutely wonderful fun. Thank you. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.